Hello and welcome to EndNotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by researchers at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is Kim Lane Shepley, a professor at Princeton and expert on constitutional and international law. We're going to talk about her new edited collection, 9-11 and the Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, which was published by Cambridge University Press. So Kim, I, I can't really think of a timelier moment to release such a volume, both because we're nearing the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but also because Afghanistan is currently in turmoil following a takeover by the Taliban. So I just want to get your reaction to sort of everything that's transpired in the past couple of weeks. Oh, well, thank you, first of all, for highlighting the book. And yes, it's true. We timed it to come out with the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And when we were planning the book, we had no idea that the anniversary of 9-11 would be so momentous and take us back to that time right after the the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon when the U.S. launched this war in Afghanistan. So the first thing to say and what the book highlights is that we all may focus on the places where the U.S. went to war to fight terrorists. But the fact is that 9-11 launched a global war, which is to say that the Bush administration at the time didn't just send troops halfway around the world, but they also went to the United Nations and said, this is a campaign that every single country in the world has to participate in. And the Bush administration succeeded in getting past a momentous Security Council resolution. Uh, The resolution is called 1373 because it's like prisoners jokes, you know, joke number 65, and they all laugh. At the Security Council, it's the number of the resolution, and then everybody knows what it is. So the resolution that launched all this is Resolution 1373. And what that did was to say that every single state in the UN system had to fight terrorism in a common way. And that included, in their domestic legal system, criminalizing something called terrorism, even though the UN didn't know what that was. They didn't have a definition of it. It involved cooperating with other states to kind of share information about any terrorists you knew on your territory that you might know on their territory. It required setting up security cooperation. So your intelligence services, you, a country, your intelligence services had to cooperate with another country's intelligence services. Um, And it required stopping the flow of people who might be moving as terrorists across international borders. So when we look at what's happening in Afghanistan and we look, for example, at the difficulty Afghan nationals who worked with the U.S. and other troops are having in getting out, part of the reason why they're having trouble in getting out is that all the borders were hardened as a result of these Security Mm -hmm. Council resolutions. It means that visa requirements went up. It means that it's harder to travel without being tracked. It means that every single border crossing now requires the showing of documents that it didn't used to show. So a lot of what we're seeing is this bottleneck now in Afghanistan is the result of the system put in place as a result of the Security Council resolution and all the stuff that went with it. So our book is relevant even to the panic that we're now seeing in Kabul. So what might we see going forward, given what you just said? Will there just be people sort of trapped in Afghanistan with those border barriers or Will there be a break in that? Well, so the border controls are one big piece of it. Another big piece of it is that the Security Council 
developed the system over 20 years. And so one of the new frameworks that they put in place within the last, you know, seven, eight years is a framework that that requires all states to prohibit um, the, the movement of what they call foreign terrorist fighters. So, for example, you know, the Taliban has been under sanctions. Many of the members of the Taliban have been bottled up in Afghanistan because they they can't move. <laughs> Right. So essentially what this what the system has done is to try to create these international alert systems so that when people who are suspected of terrorist involvement try to travel, they can't. It it also blocks such people from having bank accounts anywhere. So everybody's assets have been frozen if they're on these kind of watch lists and so on. And that covers not just places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and the sort of broader Middle East. But that includes people with Swiss bank accounts and it's banks all over the world that are freezing assets, blocking travel and so on. So that system has in many ways, it was designed to kind of limit terrorist activity to the places where it started so that it wouldn't affect the rest of the world. And now that we see refugee flows right now that we see a lot of people moving in and out of these areas who may or may not have their documentation with them. They're also going to be affected by this system that screens everybody for their involvement with terrorism. And if you're coming from a place like Afghanistan, you're going to be high on the list of people who are going to get the extra scrutiny. So, you know, the very thing that tried to bottle up terrorism in certain places is now going to prevent the refugee flows or make it much more difficult to uh, to manage these refugee flows. I mean, with that being said, because I know the book looks at counterterrorism efforts since 2001 over the past 20 years, how would you grade or rate Resolution 1373 in light of what you just said? Well, it, it's been extremely effective in the sense that, you know, unlike most Security Council resolutions, the degree of compliance with this resolution was extraordinary. And one of the things we look at in the in the book is that, you know, some countries like many countries in Western Europe complied with the resolution because they follow the law. Right. One thing that the resolution said was you have to change your domestic law to comply. And so a lot of states reworked their legal systems precisely in order to comply with the resolution. But then there were a bunch of kind of dodgy states with dictators in charge who looked at this resolution and said, wow, this gives me a lot of new powers. I can criminalize terrorism and I can define terrorism as anything I mm. want. You know, so Vietnam, which doesn't really have a problem with radical Islamic terrorism, Vietnam defined terrorism as, quote, anything that disrupts the people's order. It became a license for arresting all the opponents of the government. And wow. you saw things like that happening all over the place. Um, people who were spreading terrorist information was something else that got criminalized. And Vanuatu starts arresting journalists. So, you know, in a lot of countries that were, shall we say, willing and eager to take advantage of all the powers that this resolution gave to governments. Moreover, they said, you know, you have these powers and it's law. You must do it. And so all of these, you know, non-democratic governments were saying, wow, what a gift. You know, so the compliance with this resolution was very high, but not always in ways that contributed to the fight against international terrorism. It really contributed a lot to the decline of human rights around the world. And our book emphasizes that. 
in fact, one of the things about this book is that we were able to pull together the three people who have served as the UN rapporteurs for, it's a long title, their titles are they're the UN Rapporteur for Protecting Human Rights While Fighting Terrorism. And these are UN uh, officials who sit into Security Council meetings, try to figure out how to align the anti-terrorism campaign with the human rights campaign. And all of them came to the conference that eventually produced this book. And two of the three of them have chapters in the book. So we were trying to figure out how do you reconcile fighting terrorism with everything else the UN is supposed to do, in particular protecting human rights and vulnerable persons. Could you give us like a little preview of maybe what they said or a conclusion or two that they they came up with? Yeah. So in the early days, like right after 9-11, as you could imagine, you know, the world was in shock and and basically the early resolutions, 1373, and then there were a sequence of others, paid no attention whatsoever to human rights. So, you know, the, the laws that were being passed all over the world were laws that were kind of like the USA Patriot Act without the protections, <laughs> you know. And so in those early days, there were huge hits that were being taken to, you know, human rights all over the world. Eventually, um, and particularly when the Obama administration came in and because the U.S. has an outsized role in how all these U.N. deliberations happen, when the Obama administration came in, they said, look, we have to build human rights into the system somehow. And so human rights concerns wound up appearing in some of the later resolutions, but the system never really caught up to protecting human rights. So just to give you one more example, this resolution um, that prohibits or that requires states to block the flow of foreign terrorist fighters well, how do they know what's a foreign terrorist fighter, right? I mean, this is what the resolution leaves unspecified. So every country declares different kinds of people to be foreign terrorist fighters. So for example, one of the chapters that I wrote in this book looks at what happened in Ukraine because the resolution on foreign terrorist fighters happened just at the moment when this, you know, sort of warm war, not a hot war, not a cold war, broke out in Eastern Ukraine as Russian fighters crossed the border and helped their compatriots in uh, in eastern Ukraine uh, to, you know, fight the Ukrainian government. Well, the Ukrainian government declared all the Russians foreign terrorist fighters. <laughs> but then, the, then Ukraine took in a bunch of Islamist radical fighters from Chechnya and the Caucasus who wanted nothing more than to kill Russians. And the Ukrainians created a whole battalion of their military filled with these folks that everybody else would have thought of as foreign terrorist fighters because those foreign terrorist fighters wanted to fight and kill Russians after what Russia had done in Chechnya, if that makes sense, right? It was like a, a grudge match. But those folks, Ukraine was encouraging to cross borders and join the Ukrainian army. The Ukrainian army, by the way, also took in a whole bunch of of neo-Nazis from all over the place, including to some extent the U.S., to, as another battalion in their military. So in my article on the Ukrainian conflict, one of the things that you see is that it's up to the state what they consider a foreign terrorist fighter and who they think of as an ally who can help them in whatever conflict they're fighting in their particular local territory. So, you know, when the UN, uh, when the UN passes these resolutions, Every member state is supposed to comply, but every member state is in a different geopolitical situation. And when they translate that resolution into their domestic conflicts, 
it often comes out doing the opposite, you know, of what the Security Council thought it was doing. And the Ukrainian example is just a, a decent case of that. I'm not really super familiar with international law. Are there examples where such a resolution where all countries must comply has actually worked really well related to this or not? I'm just asking for my own personal sake. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you you look at what's happened in, in terms of direct terrorist assaults on, say, Western Europe and North America, and there have been relatively few. I mean, many fewer, particularly in the U.S., than we ever thought were possible. Now, the question is how much of that was international law, right? And how much of that was the fact that the U.S. threw everything else it had at this problem, you know, including beefing up the military, including expanding the security services, you know, so it's not a controlled experiment where you can tell what the law does and what the law doesn't do. But here's why the legal part of it matters. So the Security Council has, uh, as part of another set of resolutions, kind of loosely coordinated with 1373, the resolution at the heart of our book, they have coordinated a bunch of sanctions. So if you wind up on a Security Council watch list because you're suspected of being associated with Al-Qaeda, for example, then what's supposed to happen to you is that all your bank accounts get frozen, all your travel documents are flagged at borders, you essentially become a non-person with no resources. So there were a number of people who got flagged in this process who were probably the wrong people because the process for flagging turns out to be not a judicial process that actually has a lot of checks. So, for example, the U.S. would go to the Security Council and say, we think this person's a terrorist. And the other member states on the Security Council would say, well, why do you think so? And the U.S. will say, well, all that's classified. We're not going to show you. But we might show the members of the Security Council who are in NATO some of the you know, information because we trust them to keep the secret. So a couple of states on the Security Council would have access to the information that made the U.S. think somebody was a terrorist. And the other states would just have to take it on faith when they voted to put the person on the list. So when you have a system like that, it's quite possible that you've got the wrong person. You know, somebody with the same name, somebody with the same birth date, even, you know, somebody who was in the vicinity of an actual terrorist, but who themselves were not implicated. They were just the cab driver who brought the person from the airport to the hotel or whatever, you know, and so you had a number of these cases of mistaken identity and there were no, there was no way to get the person off the list for the first eight years of the system, actually for the first closer to 10 years of the system. And so what would happen is that suddenly somebody would wake up and it's, it's like in the handmaid's tale, you know, in those opening scenes where women suddenly discover their bank accounts, they have no access to them. Yeah. That's what was happening to everybody who wound up on these lists. And, you know, and then they would try to go to a court and say, what's the evidence against me? I'm not involved in any of this. Can you show me the evidence so I can rebut it? And for example, if you had a Swiss bank account, this happened in a lot of cases, these guys would go to the Swiss government and say, what's the evidence you have that I've done anything? And the Swiss government would say, well, we don't have any evidence. We're just following orders from the Security Council. <laughs> so all these cases in Swiss courts would wind up, the person would go into Swiss court, the government would come in and say, we have no information. And the Swiss court would usually dismiss the case, you know, without actually fixing the problem for the individual who brought the case, because the entire thing, it's law, remember, it's international law. 
and an act of the Security Council takes precedence over all other forms of international law, including international human rights law, say through the European Convention on Human Rights. And so the Swiss courts would look at that and they'd say, the Security Council wins because they're higher up in the legal order than the regional human rights conventions. So this was a case where law was was this this particular set of international laws was dominating the landscape and wiping out human rights protection and the other things that we thought asylum law, I mean, everything else that we thought that the international system also supported because of the hierarchy in international law, where everything the Security Council does takes precedence over everything else. So that so that's one reason for writing this book, because, of course, this stuff works like a one-way ratchet, right? Once the Security Council gets involved, it doesn't ever say, no, never mind, we're going to take it all back, <laughs> right? I mean, to, to reverse any one of these resolutions would require the same vote as the vote that put the resolution into place. And so the the permanent five members, you know, Russia, China, France, uh, UK, and the United States, any one of them could veto taking it all back. And frankly, China loves this stuff. This is the grounds on which they've imprisoned, you know, all of the Uyghurs um, who are in Western China, for example. This is the ground, the sort of security ground they've also been using in Hong Kong. A lot of this is assimilated to their anti-terrorism framework. And then they say, we're just following international law. So you can't get rid of it until all P5 plus the other states on the Security Council agree to let it go. And that has not happened in 20 years. This is really helpful information. I am you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the human rights element, which I'm starting to see you're, you're the perfect person to talk to about this because I know you sit in the Center for Human Values and you're an expert on law. So this, is, this has been a great conversation. Um, are there other practical or theoretical issues that you know, arise from counterterrorism measures involving so many different actors that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, so there are, there are a lot. So, for example, one of the other uh, authors in our book was actually studying this system uh, through which eventually the UN Security Council uh, learned to take people off the list. They have some procedure now where you can go to an ombudsman and say, I'm in the wrong place here and so on. What my colleague discovered, though, in studying how that process worked, was that this, there's there were a couple hundred people on this list. doesn't look like a lot to get excited about. If you're one of them, of course, it's terrible. But what the Security Council had developed under the guise of enforcing that resolution, was a global cooperation network across security services from, you know, good democracies like North America and Europe to terrible security services like the Moroccan security service is famous for torturing people, for example. And if you work out security cooperations where for a long time the U.S. was sending people to Morocco for interrogation, They'd be interrogated in these systems with nothing like the protections they would have if they were in the U.S. system. But then using frameworks that the Security Council had put together, that information would be sent, you know, by a kind of a, uh, uh, it's called interoperability through systems where security, um, uh, security services literally share the same networks. And the Security Council helped build 
the networks and these communication systems between security services, including the security services of states that have reasonable protections for human rights and the security services that don't. So there's been this kind of global division of labor between the countries willing to torture people and and you know violate human rights on a massive scale to get information. And then they pass it on to the countries that keep their hands clean and say, oh, we haven't done any of that. And the Security Council was mediating a lot of this stuff, you know, and the U.S. was saying, well, it's global law. What can we do? We're just, you know, yes, we benefit, but look, Ma, no hands. You know, when you when you pass this off to the U.N., it looks like it's a neutral, benign force. (laughs) But the fact was that all the world powers were on the same side in this one, which is how you could get these resolutions through the Security Council. You know, when the U.S., Russia, China, and our European allies all are on the same page with something, there's no limit to what they can do, and that's what we've seen. So, you know, it's a kind of unholy cooperation that was built 20 years ago in a time of crisis, and the remarkable thing is here we are 20 years later, and that cooperation has only deepened, the system has only gotten bigger, and no one's talking about rolling it back. Um, We thought that it was all temporary, and it turned out to be a permanent feature of our international legal world. So now I'm sitting here, and I just want to say, now what? Um, and, and you know, maybe the book talks about this a little bit with some policy implications or even recommendations. Yeah. Well, so yeah. So one of the things that we would love to see is an assessment, and we have a sort of an appendix uh, to the book where somebody who was a consultant to the UN Security Council. Uh, we reproduced something that he had written 10 years ago that said, here's how you fix it. And nothing's been acted on. But, you know, if, if that report was only circulated in, in UN circles. We're trying to bring it out to a broader audience. And, you know, the Security Council, if the Security Council is going to have powers like that, there has to be some legal mechanism that reviews whether they're exercising their powers appropriately. You know, why isn't there some tribunal that hears the complaints of the people that the Security Council has put on these watch lists? You know, why isn't there some, like the the UN Security Council is supposed to be limited by the mission to protect international peace and security. So how come an attack by a non-state actor on one country became international law (laughs) immediately? Like, who would say the Security Council was overstepping its bounds? So a lot of us feel like we need to expand, for example, the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice to cover review of Security Council actions, you know, checks and balances like you would have in a domestic legal system. But there were no checks and balances built into the UN system. It's like having an uncontrolled executive, which is what the Security Council functionally is in the UN system. And so what we were proposing was expanding the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, finding some way to build human rights more directly into the Security Council structure, you know, so that there are offices that are in charge of reviewing the impact that Security Council resolutions have on human rights and so on. So we conclude the book with these recommendations, um, which were made to the Security Council 10 years ago, but now we're lifting them up and saying, so what's taking you so long? Um, But the Security Council, you know, which was designed to preside over the peace of the world, you know, after the Second World War, has now become one of the major players in this war on terrorism. 
which for 20 years has been largely orchestrated from the UN. So it's a complete flip of what the UN's mission was and and really, quite frankly, unknown to many people because what everybody sees is what their national governments are doing. They don't realize this coordinating level um, that is now being sort of occupied by the Security Council. And we're just trying to make that more visible so everyone can see, in some sense, the hand behind what national governments are doing. That's why we need people like you and your collaborators and researchers who know this topic so well. Um, This has been really eye-opening for me. Before we wrap up, I I do like to ask people on this show just about the process of putting together a book. And I don't know if there's people you want to thank or just, you know, sort of what motivated it um, and who should read it. I think I already know the answer to that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, of course, you know, we all wish everybody would read this. But but I should say that, of course, you know, a a book like this isn't one person's effort. So first of all, my co-editor, Ariana Verdazzi, uh, who was at Bocconi University in Milan, uh, is was absolutely instrumental to the production of this book. In fact, she was really the one who who pulled many things together and hosted the conference that gave rise to the book um, at her university in Italy. Um, but also, we were working under the auspices of something called the International Association of Constitutional Law, where we have a working group on protecting rights while fighting terrorism or constitutional protection of rights in terrorism campaigns. And that group has been going on for almost 20 years now. And so I'm the chair of it at the moment. And Ariana is the is the sort of rapporteur of our group. But it was done under the auspices of that um, of the International Association of Constitutional Law. So um, and then, you know, the the U.N. rapporteurs um, who work in this area every day, all of them cooperated with this project to see it to fruition. So. You know, these things are never individual uh, efforts. And in particular, when you have an edited volume like this, um, Ariana Vadasky really um, deserves a ton of credit for everything she did to bring the book uh, to light. And Cambridge University Press, which, you know, took a took a risk and has been terrific in the production. So getting it out in time for 9-11. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, well, Kim, we're about out of time. But is there anything else you want to add before we close out today? Well, one of the things I say when I'm teaching is that whenever you look at something in the world, you know, especially when you're trained as a lawyer, you realize that almost everything you see has law sort of underneath the surface. You know, the way when you look at a body, you know, there's a skeleton in there somewhere. And so what I try to train my students to do, you know, at SPIA and, you know, at Princeton more generally is to realize that there's that skeleton underneath almost everything you see. And when you try to probe and figure out what is that skeleton holding things up? You will often find surprises. And so discovering this structure of UN Security Council resolutions, which almost nobody was writing about at the time some of us started, you know, just a few years into it, that was a real surprise and a real shock. And it still comes as a surprise and a real shock for people who work on terrorism. So law is everywhere. Law is everywhere just under the surface. And if you look hard enough, you'll find it and you realize that that explains a lot of things. That is a great place to wrap up and have us thinking about that. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Um, 9-11 and the rise of global anti-terrorism laws available through Cambridge University Press, Amazon, and wherever else you find books. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks so much for being interested in the book. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This show is edited and produced by me, Rose Huber. We also want to thank our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. 
Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or Princeton SPIA.